Hello everyone, welcome to the first episode in the new programming strand at Wising, Desktop Studio Visits. My name is John Bloomfield and I work at Wising as a curator. For this first episode, I'm joined by Ruth Angel Edwards, who's calling in over Zoom from her studio in London. The format of the event is that Ruth and I have chosen some artifacts from Ruth's ongoing residency. We're going to play, show or read them, and we're going to talk about them. It's really as simple as that. Desktop Studio Visits are available as podcasts, videos, and as live events. Our next event will be with Crystal Ness in June. So I'll just introduce Ruth before we play our first video. Ruth Angel Edwards explores the dissemination of ideology through pop culture, drawing from sub and countercultural movements, both past and present, as well as the conditions which give rise to them. Individualism, the body, gender and sexuality, consumerism and spirituality are recurring themes in her work. Hedonism, spectacle and dissent are deconstructed and reformed to create communicative works across a variety of media. Ruth has been in residence at Wising over a number of periods since July 2020, working with a few friends and collaborators, Adam Gallagher, Chloe Mogill, Conrad Pack and Emily Pope. Okay, so let's play our first video of the publisher V Vale. V Vale sits in front of the camera holding a copy of Swing, the new retro renaissance. Vivale has dark sunglasses and is sitting inside. Hi, I'm Vivale, founder of Research Publications, and before then, Search and Destroy. I'm holding a book I titled Swing, although sometimes I wish I'd titled it Retro, because it's all about retro culture, appreciating the best that America's produced, and it's a fantastic guide to old vintage clothes, furniture, even vintage cars and motorcycles, but best of all, vintage music, a lot of which has been almost forgotten, such as my favorite music of all time definitely encompasses artists like Cab Calloway, who's mentioned in here, and my favorite dancing of all time definitely has to be state-of-the-art swing dancing, pioneered by Lindy Hop people, and... Um, this is the wildest dancing ever invented for partners, and I used to have a bad joke that I've never seen so many strange women's underpants in all my life. This is an absolutely wild scene. People didn't understand why I did this book, especially coming from punk rock. All I can say is, you weren't there. You missed this absolutely mind-bogglingly athletic dancing that was extremely provocative and I like provocation. So, having said that, please check out this book at my website, researchpubs.com. Thank you very much. Vivale sits in front of the camera holding a copy of Pranks. He is wearing sunglasses and sitting inside. Hi, I'm Vivale, founder of Research Publications. Been here for 30 years. It went by like snapping your fingers and I'm happiest maybe of all the research books I like the pranks book the best because I think reality is a despicable concept and I think it ought to be second nature to deconstruct and reinvent reality wherever you go and never be satisfied with reality and pranks and as exemplified in this 240 page book it's like taking a university course on remapping your brain and perceptions you from this book will definitely make you greatly appreciate 
the world as it ought to be, not the way it is. Every time you see a billboard, you will think of a way to reinvent and improve the billboard. You will not take reality at face value anymore. There's no substitute for the original Pranks book. Thank you. Basically, he started out, um, he claims to have made the first uh, punk zine in the 70s, um, which was called Search and Destroy in San Francisco. Um, and from there, he kind of went on to start publishing these more, um, yeah, proper books, I guess. But they're very, a kind of a pre-internet way of um, documenting subculture and counterculture. Um, or sometimes they're just, you know, the whole book is an interview with somebody. Um, for example, he's got an interview book with J.G. Ballard, I think. Um, and just really anything he wanted to publish. So it's kind of, yeah, he still has, um, I could put it in the chat actually, a link to, so it's called Research Publishing. Um, so he's got like titles on uh, like body modification, on like industrial music we were looking at earlier. Yeah. Like, yeah, like any, like most subcultures you could think of really. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of his things I was reading is that he believes that in the world there were something like a thousand truly interesting people and he just calls them like source thinkers and he tries to track down those people and um, I guess that's sort of his like lifelong project with the with the research um, publishing uh, yeah that sort of yeah that imprint yeah um, it's really nice like I think it's some of the way that he describes those videos the the two ones of him just presenting some of his um, some of the things he's published he's got uh, on his YouTube channel he's kind of got quite a few video, not, not of everything, but like of a lot of his more um, well-known things. Um, there's one, in fact, I've got one here. I've got some actual things to show as well. I don't know if that's like, that's uh, yeah. okay. But yeah, this is uh, Modern Pagans, which is uh, one of my favorite books that he's published. Um, and it's basically just a series of interviews with different people. Um, yeah, kind of like, not around yeah main, mainly in america canada and europe but yeah it, it's just kind of really nice and a lot of them i don't know that some of the stuff in there i just found really interesting it's a lot of it's about kind of communal living or kind of um yeah just rejecting normal societal ways of living um but in a variety of different ways yeah it's amazing. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about the project is the role it the role it had before the internet and sort of how um, you know they could they, these would be a source for so many uh, to find out about so many different subcultures. I mean, in in music there were a few sort of there were like lists which are really famous. Like I was thinking earlier about um, Nurse with Wounds uh, list that in there in their like debut album which was this like really um like really famous list of just like loads of experimental and outsider music some of which is supposed to be like made up names of artists and bands and then in there there's also loads of like incredible stuff and then also um i think when like back in july was, we were talking about um smile on nylon which is like my background today and it's a uh, um it, it, 
was a series of cassette mixes made for made for a clove shop in in New York in the in the nineties, I think. So it's just before the internet, and it was this like amazing uh, result of all this like digging culture, but like all the you know, and you people would track them down and sort of just try and find out what like what all the records were and just be like all this obscure stuff. Um, uh, but I guess my question then is that I think we're I think we're about a similar age and my sort of experience with the internet is that I remember a before and I remember an after. So I just wondered how you sort of like when you were growing up, how did you find out about interesting stuff? That um, yeah, I don't know. I guess like, yeah, when I was much younger, it, there was still a thing of if you went somewhere, you just go to a record shop and like pick up flyers, um, stuff like that, which are really, yeah. I, I kind of miss that a bit, but um, yeah, it definitely has changed a lot. Um, I think like, yeah, I've got like a massive affection for people like Vale um, and that way of kind of um, serving like a really practical role in within like, not necessarily a scene because it's like across quite a lot of different subcultures, but it's kind of, like he actually aimed to produce a resource that people could use. So for example, with the um, with the body modifications book, it's also acted like a kind of yellow pages where it had like where you could go all the different places in different cities. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's some of them, like I, I think he says that that book took him, um, he started making it in 1982 and only published, finished and published it in 1989. So uh, compiling all of those different places as well as all the interviews and everything, is, it's a complete labour of love. Um, and also even in, in that era when things maybe didn't move so fast, I guess like by the time he published it, some of the stuff could already be outdated or like the people might be, yeah. I don't know, doing different things or whatever. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. Um, okay, shall we move on to the next artifact then, which is the, just the trailer for Matthew Barney's uh, Cremaster yeah. Cycle. Okay. A sports field shot from above. A flying shot of a mountain. A flying shot of a skyscraper. Flying shots of cliffs in a stormy sea. Flying shot of a city bridge over water at dusk. A woman is doubled over under a table enclosed by a tablecloth, with blonde hair and high heels. Slow zoom on someone hunched in the passenger seat of a car. A man stands under foliage and flowing ribbons wearing a suit. A man applies a prosthetic mask in a padded room. Two women dressed in red remove a veil from a seated woman. A woman dressed in pink on a pink platform throws a balloon to the camera. Blind shot of a skyscraper. Um, I guess the other nine hours of the cycle are available <laughs> somewhere. Um, 
so yeah I really want well, I really wanted to show that because we talked the other day about what you what you spent some of your time doing on the residency and um um yeah could you could you tell us about that um yeah so it was it was really nice like uh you asking me about that the other day was it was good to put myself back into that headspace um and to think because it has been quite a long time since I actually came out um to Wising on like and was out there like actually doing the first bit of the residency um so it was July last year and it was very um yeah I mean it's, I don't need to go into detail about how weird a time it was because everyone's going through the exact same kind of things but like um yeah it felt very surreal to suddenly be um yeah traveling anywhere seeing people everyone at Wising hadn't even seen each other for a long time um and where I was staying in the farmhouse is if yeah for anyone who doesn't know um Wising as a site that's like a building that seems to be pretty much designed for like um collaboration and a sort of um it's a huge there's how many people can stay there it's quite a lot isn't it a lot of rooms 10 12 um, people yeah big kitchen with a massive table living room um very much seems to be somewhere that it invites um yeah like sort of hanging out in groups and talking and things like that and but because of social distancing I was staying in there on my own which was kind of like quite a mad surreal experience in itself um but great but also yeah very uh not what I was expecting when I'm I thought I was going to do the residency but um yeah it was also just a weird moment to kind of reflect on what I'd set out to do for the residency what I was even doing with my work what kind of you know how you could produce art and what that even meant you know after this quite mad thing was going on so it just for me it became more like thinking when you asked me the day but what I was actually doing while I was out there in July I was kind of I, I was um working in this amazing sound studio that you made but also a lot of the time I was just kind of just like who am I what am I doing kind of what you know what do I want um to even produce into the future and I ended up kind of like just looking back at things that had um yeah been important to me at certain points when I was a lot younger or I'd come across a, a certain time and you know it's, it stuck with me or I remembered them to be one thing and then you know re-looking really into them again and being like wow you know how do I what do I think about that now what you know it yeah so those kinds of things um I watched quite a lot of artist films that were on like um a big uh dropbox thing that someone had sent me um and yeah I watched all of the cream master cycle films which is like yeah not not what I was particularly coming out to Wising to do but um it was yeah I don't know it like looking back on that kind of art making now just seems absolutely bizarre because it's this like this pinnacle moment of just excess I suppose um yeah. and the film itself to me seems to be this kind of surrealist investigation of I mean pretty standard like yeah like male desire advertising that kind of it's I mean, I also quite enjoyed it. It's it's so decadent, and it and it is it is inspiring in a way that it's of, of just on a kind of um, 
yeah, just a sort of spectacular level or something. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know why that was, that came up in conversation, but that was one of my main memories of being there in July is watching. So also all those films are, I think that they were also made, it, he was really um, specific about how they would be distributed. So I don't think they're not e that easily available. Um, and the ones that I ended up watching were kind of just ripped from, they were like VHS copies, so they weren't um, very sort of high quality. But that was maybe quite nice. But um, yeah, I think there were some really elaborate DVD editions, like just made to, yeah, just obviously super, super expensive. Yeah, I think as far as I'm aware, I, maybe I'm not right about this actually, but like I think the the Guggenheim one, which is the final one that was made, it was available on DVD. But I think that the other ones were just available to buy, like as an art, you know, for galleries and collectors. Um, very, very expensively, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, yeah. We're, I guess we're always interested in what um, artists actually do when they come to Wising. Um, <laughs> yeah. Everybody comes with their own, with uh, let say for a research-based residency, everyone will come with a suitcase full of books and films and you know things they want to they want to like go into in detail to to research. And then it's often really interesting to see how they get sidetracked and what sort of new like discoveries or like rediscoveries of old things happen um which sort of takes us on to the next the next thing we're going to play which is um an extract from uh hacking bay's uh temporary autonomous zones but the extract is put to music by bill laswell so yeah we could play that Radio Discordia presents Temporary Autonomous Zone by Hacking Bay with music by Bill Blaswell. Radio Discordia, coming at you from Discordia Culture Shop. Weird dancing in all-night computer banking lobbies, unauthorized pyrotechnic displays, land art, earthworks as bizarre alien artifacts, strewn in state parks, burglarize houses but instead of stealing leave poetic terrorist objects, kidnap someone and make them happy. Pick someone at random and convince them that they're the heir to an enormous, useless and amazing fortune, say 5,000 square miles of Antarctica, or an aging circus elephant, or an orphanage in Bombay or a collection of alchemical manuscripts. Later, they will come to realize that for a few moments they believed in something extraordinary. And will perhaps be driven as a result to seek out some more intense mode of existence. 
bolt up brass commemorative plaques in places, public or private, where you have experienced a revelation or had a particularly fulfilling sexual experience. Go naked for a song. Organize a strike in your school or workplace on the grounds that it does not satisfy your need for indolence and spiritual beauty. Graffiti art loaned some grace to ugly subways and rigid public monuments. Poetic terrorist art can also be created for public places. Poems scrawled in courthouse lavatories. Small fetishes abandoned in parks and restaurants. Xerox art under windshield wipers of parked cars. Big character slogans pasted on playground walls. Anonymous letters mailed to random or chosen recipients. Mail fraud. Pirate radio transmissions. Wet cement. The audience reaction or aesthetic shock produced by poetic terrorism ought to be at least as strong as the emotion of terror. Powerful disgust, sexual arousal, superstitious awe, sudden intuitive breakthrough, Dada-esque angst. No matter whether the poetic terrorism is aimed at one person or many, no matter whether it is signed or anonymous, if it does not change someone's life, aside from the artist, it fails. Poetic terrorism is an act in a theater of cruelty which has no stage, no rows of seats, no tickets, and no walls. In order to work at all, poetic terrorism must categorically be divorced from all conventional structures for art consumption, galleries, publications, media. Even the guerrilla situationist tactics of street theater are perhaps too well known and expected now. An exquisite seduction carried out not only in the cause of mutual satisfaction, but also as a conscious act in a deliberately beautiful life may be the ultimate poetic terrorism. The poetic terrorist behaves like a confidence trickster whose aim is not money, but change. Don't do poetic terrorism for other artists. Do it for people who will not realize, at least for a few moments, that what you have done is art. Avoid recognizable art categories. Avoid politics. Don't stick around to argue. Don't be sentimental. Be ruthless. Take risks. Vandalize only what must be defaced. Do something children will remember all their lives. But don't be spontaneous. Unless the poetic terrorist muse has possessed you. Dress up. Leave a false name. Be legendary. The best poetic terrorism is against the law. But don't get caught. Art as crime. Crime as art. All right. <laughs> so, Hakim Bey, how um, yeah, how did you find revisiting that text then? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I brought it with me to Wising um, with some other books as well. And it, I still have like the copy that I had like a long time ago. But um, yeah, it's, it, I don't know. It was weird revisiting it because I think it holds in it some kind of ideas that always will resonate with me. And I think that, that aspect was really nice to see how those things had stayed with me. But then there were other areas where I was sort of like, oh no. <laughs> um, and also I didn't really, I think when I came across uh, the Temporary Autonomous Zone, it, I didn't 
you know, really do any investigation into Hakim Bey and there was no context for me because it was, I didn't really know sort of, I guess now, now reading it, you're, you're so aware of how performative it is and how it's kind of, you know, the whole thing is on the edge of whether or not it's serious and, you know, is it really telling you to go and commit crime or do these things? But I think when I was like, yeah, a, a teenager, I guess, I was not perhaps aware of those nuances in the same way. Um, but yeah, no, it's got some, there's another um, clip from it, which is longer that I might, if possible, play at the end, um, if anyone wants to listen to that as well. But that's about this idea of immediatism, which is kind of, um, yeah, I guess the sort of, yeah, like Dardarist, situationist influence idea that's kind of about the immediacy of um, creativity being, um, I guess, a way to reclaim um, the idea of art as being a commodity. And that's just something that listening to it now was actually, well, so there's there's a, a version put to music, which is what I sent to you. Um, but obviously at Wising, I was just reading the book, but um, yeah, I think that that is quite nice to read or listen to now. Um, I mean, it's definitely ideas in, in both that I can see informing some of the work you made at Wising were around that time. And um, it's just like the, the some of the style sound seems so so dated and like the, the tone, like, I, and it's, I guess it's just been like subsumed into the mainstream, like, it, it, like listening to it, it just actually just reminded me of like Fight Club or something like that, or like, a, yeah. like the branding you'd get on like a, a can of Brewdog or something. It was that kind totally. of- Totally. Yeah. Uh, made me think about um like it's actually it's I mean I guess this this always seems to happen but it is a bit sad because I think there's an element to that text which is obviously sort of trying to think of the most ruthless ways to kind of break away from the commodification of sort of like with visual culture and and art and music at the time but now you just see all those like exact yeah all of those ideas just kind of worked into the different branding like it made me think of like there's these oat milk adverts that are everywhere at the moment that have just got this tattooed person I can't remember they're just all very sort of ironic or you know it's a billboard and it's a bit confusing it's advertising but it's sort of not and then or like it made me think of um I don't know why this came into my head but you know when innocent smoothies as like a sort of a gimmick I think for Christmas or something they put like little woolly hats on the smoothie um like individually knitted hats and it's the kind of thing that just it sort of like looks like maybe just a random person did that or something but obviously they didn't it was Innocence movie just deciding to do this weird novelty kind of thing that I don't know it's yeah yeah I mean it's a bit yeah there's a big history of that, of like advertising being informed by sort of like the avant-garde, I mean, that situationists, like any of that, just like bringing all of those techniques into just, yeah, like a, the act of selling stuff. Yeah. Um, there's it in, in the other section that I sent, there's a bit which is, um, it kind of suggests that the same people that would do these things or hold these ideas, in private would have a kind of public facing um, 
sort of art or creativity that mm-hmm. would be art like art as part of an art uh you know the art world or um advertising and things like that which I kind of it that had really reading that again or noticing that I was kind of like oh so you know who knows maybe this was the same kind of people that were kind of putting out this kind of stuff as more of a kind of exercise or I don't know but I also think that um there's still something to be taken from the the, the poetic terrorism idea it's, it's not like it's not without possibility to try and implement it today for sure well on that note let's play the next the next piece which is well we'll, we'll play it and then we'll, we'll introduce it afterwards saturated grass and flowers. The images are spliced together quickly. Cracks appear on phone screens in time with the music. too quickly to be read. Text reading smash your phone flashes on screen. Slow pans across smashed phone screens. glass shows on screen in time with the sounds. These images show up with greater frequency. frequency increases. Flashes of saturated grass and trees. Smashed phone sits on grass. 
Focus is slowly pulled from the phone screen to the reflection of the sky and trees in the phone screen. This repeats for different phones. Okay, great. Sarif, is that called the, the anti-phone film? What's the title? Um, yeah, I think it's just, at the moment, it's just called anti-phone propaganda uh, video. Okay, so yeah, a bit a bit of context then. So we commissioned you to make a short work about about a year ago, and it was part of it was one of the things that Wising did at the beginning beginning of the pandemic, and um, it's going to go up on our broadcast site next week, but has already been in circulation for a while. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Um, yeah, so basically, it, it's kind of a weird. Uh, piece because it's just when you um yeah when that when I got that commission from you it was definitely just I was I think I was meant to be going out to Wising at that point but everything had been obviously postponed and put on hold but um but yeah just it's quite a kind of initially it just felt like a quite uh quite didactic cathartic piece just at the time I was just feeling quite against smartphones and um, yeah, just, it was really quite enjoyable to just smash all these phones up and photograph them in the park and take some film um, and kind of work that into this video. Um, and also, yeah, it was nice to kind of play around with this sort of quite crude animation, um, which is something that I'm kind of, I want to make like a second sequel piece to that. Um, that's the the animation's a little bit more um, yeah a bit more elaborate and it has some painted elements as well but um, but yeah it's kind of um, so yeah basically I made that then and then I've also been um, disseminating it I guess through targeted ads on um, Instagram so it, there are like shorter versions because you have to have certain, there's a certain time limit for um, the story or the post ads. Um, and yeah, just making these kind of, because you can target it down to, you know, locations or people's tastes or age, all sorts of different things. So um, it's been quite fun. And now I've, I've got a few different accounts um, that are all kind of, they're, you know, like destroy your phone or, smash up your device or just different things like that um so yeah it's not it's kind of a weird thing that i'm just playing around with um definitely and it does definitely relate to the although i maybe didn't make the connection at the time it does relate to this uh, poetic terrorism kind of idea because i i was sort of trying to interrogate why i've been why i was enjoying doing it or why you know what it was for and I think it is, it's not, it's certainly not something that I would think about as being a kind of, um, yeah, sort of, it, I don't know, like anything to do with kind of a deep critique of technology and all these things, which obviously I agree with, um, but it's not, you know, it's more kind of about, you know, it feels more to me like fly posting or like, doing something where somebody might encounter it and not really know what it is. It's just part of the landscape and it may or may not resonate. And it's kind of, um, yeah, I was also quite surprised that I didn't, 
I don't know. I'm, I'm also kind of thinking who else is doing this? Because it's so cheap. You can kind of put not anything, but you, uh, you can seemingly put a, a quite a lot of different things on there um, that it will just process as an advert. So, um, yeah, so I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's like, for me, that's the thing that updates some of the ideas in, or, or like, you know, some of the ideas in the poetic terrorism extract, some of, some of them which have been, you know, uh, as we talk, you know, discussed some of the, uh, like more commercial uses but the thing that updates it for me is that you're like intervening in the attention economy and just sort of, sort of turning instagram back on itself in a way that um uh is in a way i don't know it, i guess it is it is maybe it is quite 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 crude but it, i think it's interesting and um it's sort of i, I guess particularly around phones there's this sense that like you know, um, people have begun to realise that uh, maybe being on your phone is not like all the time is not is not that great. And if you get a new phone now, there'll be so many features on it which will be designed to limit the limit your use. And that's such a weird thing that they're just like a selling point for a modern a modern phone. It would be these like features that might stop you spending so much time on it. Um, and I think just as they're turning it, the product back on themselves you're yeah you're doing something that kind of mirrors that by, by putting it on instagram adverts um um okay there's a quote the next piece i wanted to read i wanted to read a quote so this is from klf's infamous manual how to have a number one the easy way and the quote goes like this so how do you go about achieving a uk number one follow this step-by-step -step guide. Firstly, you must be skint and on the dole. Anybody with a proper job or tied up with full-time education will not have the time to devote to see, it, to see it through. Also, being on the dole gives you a clearer perspective on how much of society is run. So the book as a whole, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty kind of infamous. It just like really is a guide to how you would make a number one record in, I think, I think it came out in the in the mid '80s, so it's a, like a great sort of snapshot of the, of the music scene at that time. Just sort of walks you through it. Um, some of the ideas in it have actually have actually been been used. Like they, they give this give this recipe for making a hit record, which is from what I remember. You like go and buy like whatever the most whatever's like the top of like the club charts. So you and you take the beat from that. So that would be like the most uh, up-to-date like beat that exists. And then you just go back through, you just go and find a melody from uh, something that, that was number one 30 years ago. And you basically like sing, sing that melody over that beat until you've got something that sounds different. And then you sort of work up the track from there. And that's actually, that's something that like loads of people have used and is actually just quite a good idea. But anyway. I guess the starting point, step one, is it's basically says you can't do this unless you're unless you're on the door. You have to have no money. And you have to you have to kind of uh, be signing on. So the reason I wanted to read that was because that you, uh, uh, along with Adam Gallagher, have been working on this series of podcasts um, called Welfare to Artwork. So it's a series looking at the role of the benefit system in British art and music. 
So yeah, how did you first become interested in in tracing that history? Um, I think basically we were just both claiming benefits um, last year and um, it's, that wasn't unique to last year, but definitely during that particular period where suddenly loads of people were claiming benefits. Um, and it did at the time give us loads of time to make work because there was also no other distractions at all. Um, yeah, I think that's, we just kind of started thinking about it then. Um, and it was one of those things that when you start thinking about it more or looking into it or talking to people, especially of different generations, um, younger and older, it was clear that it was just a yeah a conversation that hadn't really sort of yeah maybe hadn't no one had really been talking about that much but it could be some quite interesting things to look at um yeah it's kind of weird because we did the we did one show and then we kind of did another one and now we were originally going to maybe do three and now I think we might do five or just keep it going because the more we do it the more people seem to be reaching out and um just bringing up whole different sort of angles on different things or different areas that we haven't covered. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been quite nice. It's I guess it's some of them have been more kind of polished than others as as like radio, um, but I think it's just a really nice outlet for just a lot of research and for having especially these kind of intergenerational conversations have just been brilliant. Um, and yeah, so we had Jimmy Corty from the KLF on our second show, um, which coincidentally, he is a neighbour of where we used to live for a long time. Right, um, yeah. And we were living last year when we did that show. So um, yeah, but it's kind of weird because I actually, we asked him and um, his wife, Alana, who was in an 80s pop group as well, um, to do it. And it was only after they'd done the whole interview and stuff and he brought up that in the manual it says to sign on and I was like oh yeah of course um but the reason we originally asked them is just because we knew that they'd um yeah they were squatting in the 80s and um they just experienced like a completely different era of music and um yeah I mean one of the things you do that's really um <laughs> that, that I found really interesting is tracing it through to the 90s and sort of showing how things slowly evolved and slowly eroded well that system slowly eroded because the narrative you always hear is um artists musicians who are prominent in the 70s or 80s comparing like then with now and it's it's obviously really really different and uh yeah you could you could you could squat you could sign on and that's basically the you know the incubation period for so much of the great uh, art and music we or all love from that period but it's just kind of seeing how that like the twists and turns through the 90s I found really interesting I think you use the phrase um talk about like a working class drag and when you uh in how you and Adam do talking about the 90s um yeah that was really really interesting um definitely for this one um Adam in particular did loads of research um and that was it was really interesting kind of looking at um yeah like listening back to some of that music um like Britpop and stuff like that and realizing sort of how absurd it actually was um because yeah at, at the time I mean I was a kid but I don't remember that being sort of <laughs> I don't know it's like I really really saw it in a new light I think 
um yeah and, and stuff with with new labor and, and things like that um but in the okay. next one i think we'll probably well we've got a couple of interviews to do which will be really good i think um but also definitely it'd be good to cover some more stuff about the new deal for musicians because that's definitely it's actually been quite hard to research so that was something that tony blair brought in um which was a kind of musician's doll which was slightly more than the normal doll um mm -hmm. and if you could prove that you were a musician um perhaps going somewhere or um yeah then you could you could get this musician's doll but i remember um at the time I remember one of the main kind of most successful bands that got the musicians dolls. Um, do you remember that band Claxons? Yeah. Um, but they also, I think they, they at the time they said that they'd read the manual from the KLF and that had completely informed them making their band and making the music they made. So yeah, yeah I mean, kind of they're, they're, um, like golden scans. It's uh, hung up by Madonna. That's the that's. Like they took the melody from that, but that's, that's oh, wow. yeah. straight out the manual. Um, yeah, I'm not, not going to sing it, but that's the. <laughs> um, it's funny when yeah, the amount of stuff like there's one there's this particularly awful, but I actually kind of love it. Um, there's this album by Black Eyed Peas that's I think it's it's like that not a successful album by them, um, which is most of the tracks on it seem to follow this formula, and like it's the one that's got that like kind of it's like that kind of 80s song of like that was used on an advert for something that's like the I've had the time of my life song do you know that oh, one yeah. and then it, it's just like it's kind of brilliantly awful um but yeah that that whole album was actually just so amazingly bizarre um yeah okay we've got a few minutes left uh there's just one other thing we wanted to show. So you, you think you wanted to show your screen to show this one, and then we've got got some got some questions, but only not that much, not that much time. Cool. Um, I can't remember what this. What was I gonna? Was it um? The camera. The camera. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, basically, um, when you were asking me about the yeah my memories of being at Wising last year, one of the other things that I did was buy this um camera that I used to have a lot this this may I feel like as I'm talking now I'm kind of like I don't yeah I don't want to come across as this person that's into all these kind of uh weird nostalgias and like not at all interested in the future because I definitely think uh since last year I've moved on a little bit with these things but um but yeah I bought this camera which is a, a Canon camera from I think it's probably from 2003 or four um and it's just like it, at the time they weren't that expensive but now they're super cheap you know like I think I got this for like less than 20 pounds um and there's loads on eBay but it's just it has this quality to it that I really really like that I don't think I think it's quite specific to a certain era of digital camera where you can achieve these kind of really painterly um vibrant images and there's something to me that they they just I don't know, it, it kind of, they have this quality of being, it's, you're making something new out of what's there. It's not like, because digital photography's come on so much that it's very much now, and using a phone and things like that, it's kind of capturing exactly what is there. Whereas this still feels like making something, making it something different. Um, and I really like that about it. Um, 
so yeah that's another and I've since then I've been taking a lot of photos of this camera um so yeah that was one of the other things but um I'll work out just I was gonna yeah I was just gonna show an image just to give an example of the kind of photos that you can get with it um Ooh. Sorry, I'm being a bit. Um, That's all right. While, we, while you're doing that, technology. I'm just looking at um, the quest, some of the questions that have come in. How do I do? Oh, hold on, share screen. Um, okay. So that, so yeah, it's like these very that painterly images. That's me and Adam at the um, at Wising. Right. Okay. Um, very saturated. Um, so yeah, that was that, that was what I was going to show. Okay. So Ruth, we are we're actually uh, we've got like two minutes left. So I'm just seeing if we've got time for one last question. Okay, somebody has asked, "What's the framed poster in your studio on the left-hand side behind you?" Oh, okay. Short one. We can. Um, <laughs> this is this is actually Adam's poster. Of let's see if I can actually show you better. But it's um, it's a Guinness. It's an old Guinness. All oh, right. Advert. Yeah. Um, I think that that must be what. That was. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Kind of sat. Yeah satisfied that person's curiosity I hope okay <laughs> so yeah, those Guinness adverts are amazing I don't know who the artist was that made them but there's yeah they're all these kind of visual puns um like that one has the the kangaroo has a, a bottle of Guinness in his pouch and then the the milkman I think has like a kangaroo in his apron pocket or something yeah. um but yeah okay well yeah thank you Ruth so um yeah, it's been thank you for joining. It's been it's been great to chat through that stuff. I feel like we could have gone, yeah, gone on for gone on for days. Um, we will play the the other Hacking Bay extract just out as we at the end. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's it from us. So yeah, thanks okay. everyone for joining. And um, this will have this up as a podcast and video soon. And yeah, you can revisit if you want. Um, can yeah. I just add something quickly? <laughs> also, if it's possible, um, we could maybe um, I could put together some links to some of the stuff that's been yeah. in it as a separate thing. Um, yeah, we can do that. We can put that on the broadcast site. And also, yeah, I haven't really talked that much about the because I've done so many collaborations at Wising, um, obviously, and some more coming up. So, yeah. But yeah, that doesn't matter. <laughs> well, we can um, because they're still they're still in progress. We can come back. To, we can come back to that. We'll we'll have we'll have you back in another day with with Clary, with Emily, with Adam. Cool. Okay. Cool. Right. Thanks, John. Okay, play the last uh, track then. Radio Discordia, smart not evil.
All experience is mediated by the mechanisms of sense perception, mentation, language, etc. And certainly, all art consists of some further mediation of experience. However, mediation takes place by degrees. Some experiences, like taste, smell, sexual pleasure, are less mediated than others. Reading a book, looking through a telescope, listening to a record. Some media, especially live arts, such as dance, theater, music, or bardic performance, are less mediated than others, such as TV, CDs, virtual reality. Even among the media usually called media, some are more and others are less mediated, according to the intensity of imaginative participation they demand. Print and radio demand more of the imagination. Film, less. TV, even less. Virtual reality, the least of all, so far. For art, the intervention of capital always signals a further degree of mediation. To say that art is commodified is to say that a mediation or standing in between has occurred, and that this betweenness amounts to a split, and that this split amounts to alienation. Improv music played by friends at home is less alienated than music played live at the Met or music played through media, whether PBS or MTV or Walkman. In fact, an argument could be made that music distributed free or at cost on cassette via mail is less alienated than live music played at some huge We Are The World spectacle or Las Vegas nightclub even though the latter is live music played to a live audience, or at least so it appears. While the former is recorded music consumed by distant and even anonymous listeners. The tendency of high tech and the tendency of late capitalism both impel the arts farther and farther into extreme forms of mediation. Both widen the gulf between the production and consumption of art corresponding increase in alienation. of a mainstream and therefore of an avant-garde in the arts, it has been noticed that all the more advanced and intense art experiences have been recuperable almost instantly by the media and thus are rendered into trash, like all other trash in the ghostly world of commodities. Now, trash, as the term was redefined in, let's say, Baltimore in the 1970s, can be good fun as an ironic take on a sort of inadvertent folk culture that surrounds and pervades the more unconscious regions of popular sensibility, which, in turn, is produced in part by the spectacle. Trash was once a fresh concept with radical potential. By now, however, amidst the ruins of postmodernism, it has finally begun to stink. Ironic frivolity finally becomes disgusting. Is it possible now to be serious but not sober? 
sobriety is, of course, simply the flip side of the new frivolity. Chic neo-puritanism carries the taint of reaction in just the same way that postmodernist philosophical irony and despair lead to reaction. The purge society is the same as the binge society. After the 12 steps of trendy renunciation in the 90s, all that remains is the 13th step of the gallows. Irony may have become boring, but self-mutilation was never more than an abyss. Down with frivolity, down with sobriety. Everything delicate and beautiful, from surrealism to breakdancing, ends up as fodder for Macbeth's ads. Fifteen minutes later, all the magic has been sucked out, and the art itself dead as a dried locust. The media wizards, who are nothing if not postmodernists, have even begun to feed on the vitality of trash, like vultures regurgitating and reconsuming the same carrion in an obscene ecstasy of self-referentiality. Which way to the egress? Real art is play, and play is one of the most immediate of all experiences. Those who have cultivated the pleasure of play cannot be expected to give it up simply to make a political point, as in an art strike, or the suppression without the realization of art. Art will go on in somewhat the same sense that breathing, eating, or fucking will go on. Nevertheless, we are repelled by the extreme alienation of the arts, especially in the media, in commercial publishing, in galleries, in the recording industry, etc. And we sometimes worry even about the extent to which our very involvement in such arts as writing, painting, or music implicates us in a nasty abstraction, a removal from immediate experience. We miss the directness of play, our original kit in doing art in the first place. We miss smell, taste, touch, the feel of bodies in motion. Computers, video, radio, printing presses, synthesizers, fax machines, tape recorders, photocopiers, these things make good toys, but terrible addictions. Finally, we realize we cannot reach out and touch someone who is not present in the flesh. These media may be useful to our art, but they must not possess us, nor must they stand between, mediate, or separate us from our animal, animate selves. We want to control our media, not be controlled by them. And we should like to remember a certain psychic martial art which stresses the realization that the body itself is the least mediated of all media. Therefore, as artists and cultural workers who have no intention of giving up activity in our chosen media, we nevertheless demand of ourselves an extreme awareness of immediacy as well as the mastery of some direct means of implementing this awareness as play immediately, at once, and immediately, without mediation. Fully realizing that any art manifesto written today can only stink of the same bitter irony it seeks to oppose, we nevertheless declare, without hesitation, without too much thought, 
the founding of a movement, immediatism. We feel free to do so because we intend to practice immediatism in secret in order to avoid any contamination of mediation. Publicly, we'll continue our work in publishing, radio, printing, music, whatever, but privately we will create something else, something to be shared freely but never consumed passively, something which can be discussed openly but never understood by the agents of alienation, something with no commercial potential yet valuable beyond price, something occult yet woven completely into the fabric of our everyday lives. Immediatism is not a movement in the sense of an aesthetic program. It depends on situation, not style or content, message or school. It may take the form of any kind of creative play which can be performed by two or more people, by and for themselves, face to face and together. In this sense, it's like a game, and therefore certain rules may apply. All spectators must also be performers. All expenses are to be shared, and all products which may result from the play are also to be shared by the participants only. They may keep them or bestow them as gifts, but should not sell them. The best games will make little or no use of obvious forms of mediation, such as photography, recording, printing, but will tend toward immediate techniques involving physical presence, direct communication, and the senses. An obvious matrix for immediatism is the party. Thus, a good meal could be an immediatist art project, especially if everyone present cooked as well as ate. Ancient Chinese and Japanese on misty autumn days would hold odor parties where each guest would bring a homemade incense or perfume. At linked verse parties, a faulty couplet would entail the penalty of a glass of wine. Quilting bees, tableau vivant, exquisite corpses, the rituals of conviviality like Fourier's museum orgy, erotic costumes, poses and skits. Live music, dance, the past can be ransacked for appropriate forms and imagination will supply more. The difference between a 19th century quilting bee, for example, and an immediatist quilting bee would lie in our awareness of the practice of immediatism as a response to the sorrows of alienation and the death of art. The male art of the 70s and the zine scene of the 80s were attempts to go beyond the mediation of art as commodity and may be considered ancestors of immediatism. However, they preserved the mediated structures of postal communication and xerography and thus failed to overcome the isolation of the players who remained quite literally out of touch. We wish to take the motives and discoveries of these earlier movements to their logical conclusion in an art which banishes all mediation and alienation, at least to the extent that the human condition allows. Moreover, immediatism is not condemned to powerlessness in the world simply because it avoids the publicity of the marketplace. Poetic terrorism and art sabotage are quite logical manifestations of immediatism. 
Finally, we expect that the practice of immediatism will release within us vast storehouses of forgotten power, which will not only transform our lives through the secret realization of unmediated play, but will also inescapably well up and burst out and permeate the other art we create, the more public and mediated art. And we hope that the two will grow closer and closer and eventually perhaps become one.